Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello and welcome to a special series of pathology podcasts celebrating National Pathology Week 2010, held by the Royal College of Pathologists. I'm Ben Valsler from thenakedscientists.com and in these podcasts I'll bring you some of the highlights of this year's Pathology Week. This year's events focused on pathology, the building blocks of life. This series of three podcasts will take you behind the scenes and into the pathology labs at Great Ormond Street Hospital. We'll explore the role of pathologists in pregnancy and paediatrics and we'll get a glimpse of the world of veterinary pathology and the role that veterinary pathologists play in understanding animal developmental disorders. To celebrate National Pathology Week, the Natural History Museum hosted two Nature Live events with Alan Williams, Professor of Veterinary Diagnostic Pathology at Cambridge University. Many people would not immediately associate pathology with veterinary medicine, but pathologists played just as vital a role there as they do with human medicine. I asked Professor Williams just how the two differ. How does it differ? Well, in many ways it doesn't. Pathology is a study of disease. And the sorts of processes that cause disease in animals are very similar to those that cause disease in human beings. So the the big difference is that medical pathologists deal with people and veterinary pathologists deal with everything else. Uh, For medical pathology, it's a very long process from getting your initial medical training through to specialising in in pathology. Is it the same for veterinary science? Yes, it's very similar. Depending on which veterinary school you you attend, it's either a five- or a six-year training to to get your veterinary degree, and it's then a minimum of three years further training after that to get a specialist qualification uh, as a pathologist but of course that's not the end of the story because you've got your working life ahead of you and you're more experienced to gain but the sort of official training if you like is your degree plus at least three years after that you mentioned that there are only so many biological mechanisms that can go wrong to yeah. cause disease yeah. is there a lot that we can learn about human disease from veterinary pathology oh absolutely the way i think about it is that in an evolutionary terms if you had a million different diseases and a million different responses each one tailored to a particular disease what would you do with a millionth and oneth disease it just doesn't make sense so the tissues and cells have developed a series of generic responses to a wide range of insults and so that repertoire of, of responses is quite limited And human beings are but another mammal. So one would anticipate that mammalian responses, by and large, and I know it's being a bit simplistic, are mammalian responses. So you you can learn an awful lot. 
And if you think about it, and I know the area is slightly controversial, but the use of animals in medical research to you know, study m- diseases of people and treatments for those diseases, of course, is a well-established... Uh, and if, if animals weren't similar, then why would you be using them in the first place? Touching on the almost generic nature of some of this, you've had the opportunity to look at not just the traditional veterinary medicine animals, cats, dogs, mm-hmm. perhaps the odd horse. You've looked at some really very exotic animals. Yeah, I've been very fortunate uh, in that respect to have those op- sorts of opportunities, from elephants to crocodiles. And, of course, reptiles respond to disease in a slightly different way to mammals. That's another level of complication uh, in, in the whole thing. Uh, big cats, again, it's a bit simplistic to say a tiger is just an overgrown domestic cat, but the sorts of diseases they get are similar, sorts of responses the tissues might do. Being a, a pathologist, just as being a, a practitioner, a medical practitioner, you're trying to problem-solve all the time. Here is a problem, what has caused it, and you have to keep working backwards till you can get to the, really to the, the root of things. So it's a big problem-solving exercise, and you, you answer a sort of certain set of que- ask a certain set of questions to try and get the information to allow you to provide the answers. And just finally, what made you want to agree to join in with National Pathology Week? Do you think it's important that we try and inspire the next generation into this sort of research? Yeah. Partly, partly that. I mean, I'm rather passionate about pathology. Um, I guess as a teenager, if I look back, I was always interested in how things went wrong. Uh, rather than, you know, nature and evolution has been a wonderful thing, but it, nothing's perfect. And that's where my fascination was. And I, I just have a feeling that uh, public at large do not really understand disease and how things go wrong. And so what, what I was hoping to contribute to National Pathology Week was a small piece in a very large jigsaw of trying to promote understanding of disease and how illness works. Because if you can understand how that's happening to you or whatever, you're not so lost in the whole... or, or even afraid of disease. If you can understand something then you can rationalise it and cope with it. Alan Williams explaining how pathologists help to take away the fear of disease. Alan presented two of the Natural History Museum's nature live events, bringing a selection of bones, tissues and even a box of brains to the museum's Attenborough studio. The museum very kindly gave us permission to include some of the event in this podcast. So here's Nature Live presenter Aoife Glass. Well, good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to Nature Live here in the Attenborough studio. My name is Aoife, and I'm going to be your host for today's event. Thank you very much for coming along and joining us for a rather special Nature Live event today. Nature Live is a programme of events that happens here in the Attenborough studio in the museum pretty much every day. And normally what we do is it gives you the chance to see some of the amazing specimens that we have behind the scenes here in the museum and meet some of the people who work here. But today we're doing something a little bit different. So I'd like to introduce our veterinary pathologist, Alan Williams. Thank you very much for joining us here today, Alan. Thank you. And today we're going to be finding out all about basically what it is that you do. Yeah. But to start us off, what exactly is a pathologist and what's a veterinary pathologist? Pathology is the science and study of disease, things that go wrong. And a pathologist, our job is to work out what has gone wrong and the reasons why it has gone wrong and then potentially what we can do to stop it happening again some point in the future to other animals if it's a group of animals and one animal is sick 
others might have the same disease but not look sick just yet. So there's lots of things we can do. And as a vet, uh, obviously I work with animals rather than, well, except for today, rather than with people. This is part of National Pathology Week. It is indeed. What's, what's that all about? I, well, pathologists, we're the sort of the backroom boys. And if you take your animal to a vet, you see a, a clinician, either for vaccination, to stop it getting certain diseases, or because it's got something wrong with it. It has some disease. Uh, if the vet isn't sure straight away what it is, he can take some sort of sample and send it to me and I'll look at it and I'll tell him or her what the problem is. And I prefer to do that whilst the animal is still alive because obviously I can help that particular animal and help the vet treat that animal. Sadly, uh, some animals don't make it uh, and they come to me after they have died, usually with a question of what was the cause of death. And so that's some of the things I have brought with me to share with you, different things that happen. Uh, all these specimens have been donated, or their animals were donated to me with written permission to use for educational purposes. So all these things are here with their owner's permission, and if they weren't safe, I would not be allowed to bring them into this studio. So you feel free to handle them. They're all nice and safe. And it's going to be really interesting to have a look at... You, you hear about some of the different diseases that things mm. get. To actually see what that actually physically does to the animal in question is going yeah. to be, I think, quite fascinating. Yeah. Now, Alan, pathologists do a number of different things, but why is, why is veterinary pathology important? OK, so what it comes back to what does a pathologist do? I've just talked to you about making a diagnosis, finding out what the illness or disease is. The prognosis is what's the future likelihood for that animal? So if there's been a small lump and the vet has taken it off and I look at it and say, it's benign, it's nothing to worry about, the prognosis for that animal is very good. If it's a rampant cancer, then the prognosis is not so good. My job is to make that call, is, is to decide what it is. Understanding the disease, of course, it then influences how the animal's looked after, the care it needs, the treatment it needs, what the likely response. Some cancers respond to treatment better than others. For me to say, oh, this is cancer, is not good enough. I have to say what type it is. Otherwise, you're giving misleading information. Um, I also check on that, make sure that clinicians get their, what they think is right, is right. I have to deal, occasionally I deal with the police. They bring things to me, wanting to know why such an animal died unexpectedly. And I do research, the causes of disease, and trying to advance our knowledge. I think we all recognise that some animals get diseases that they can pass to us. We can actually also pass diseases to animals. And certainly a large part of my job with farm animals is making sure that whatever they've got is not a risk to human health. And further than that, my research actually, most of my research nowadays is on Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease... Animals don't get Alzheimer's disease, not really. Uh, they certainly don't get Parkinson's disease. The way disease works in animals is very similar to the way disease works in people. There's only so many things that can go wrong. Do animals get the same kind of diseases that we get? Pretty much, yes. Um, so the sorts of diseases that any tissue, any individual can get, can almost be sort of categorised. Trauma, tumours, infections... Development that goes a little bit wrong. 
These sorts of things, the same sort of categories in animals as people. Is there anything anyone would like to ask or know a bit more about? Have you ever done anything on sea creatures? Sea creatures, um, yes. I've done worked with pathology on fish. I've done pathology of seals. <coughs> Haven't done a whale yet. I'd quite like to do one of those. But you've got to work very quickly because they go off quite quickly. So you put a big peg on your nose while you're doing them. Yeah, I've heard they, they can be quite smelly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I remember talking to some of the guys who work behind the scenes here at the museum on our giant squid, and they were saying when they were preparing that, they've never smelt anything so bad in yeah. their lives. Question over here. What was the biggest animal that you have worked with? Uh, the biggest was three and a half tons of elephant. Wow. Yeah, she was about as, bi as big as this studio is wide. She was three and a half tons, but she'd actually probably lost about a ton and a half of weight through her illness. So she would have been uh, a, a lot bigger. It was a, that was a long job. It oh, was a long well, job. And very sad because when I was a student, I was an elephant keeper for oh, a while. Right. And elephants and their keepers get very attached to each other. So it's, it's, it was a quite a sad, uh, sad job to have to do. We've got a, another question over there. What was the most unusual disease you've worked on? Oh, that's a very Ooh. good question. The most Ooh. unusual disease you've worked on, Alan. Most unusual disease. This one's a mystery. This one here uh, is a bit of a mystery. I haven't worked on it much. It happens in people and it happens in dogs, interestingly enough. And what happens is the bones start to become very, very thick. Lots of new bone is formed around the outside. The joints are OK, but the bones... So the, the leg of the, of, or the arms of people, the bones become at least half as thick again. And it's a very unusual disease um, because the problem isn't with the bone. I mean, the problem is the bone, to some extent, but sitting in the chest, there's usually a small tumour. Minding its own business, not causing any problem in the chest, but producing this on the legs. And we have absolutely no idea why it does that. If you operate and take the tumour away, that'll go away. There are groups looking at it, it's not my research, it's others, trying to work out. But these cases are so unusual, it's very difficult to get enough to actually do any meaningful study on. So it's a very, very strange disease. Lovely question. So this could be something, that if we've got any budding pathologists, the next generation of veterinary pathologists yeah. in the audience, this could be something that you guys could answer. We've got another question down at the front here. Two, two questions. Um, yeah. uh, one is... Because you work in such a variety of animals, mm. where do you start and, and how much of it is generic between, you know, the difference between a, a whale and a field mouse must be massive. So how, how do you start a particular case? And the second question, I'd love to hear a bit more about why you're working on Parkinson's because it's got nothing to do with animals. Can I answer the second one first? Well, the first research... No, the second piece of research I did was on meningitis in pigs, as it happened. So having done work on meningitis in pigs, working out how meningitis is actually caused, I got hired to work in a human hospital uh, working on human meningitis. So whilst I was there, mad cow disease happened. So would I please now go, as one of the few people who specialise as a vet in looking at brain pathology, would I go and work on mad cow disease? And so my research was how do the nerve cells die in mad cow disease? And it's pretty much, I believe, the same way that we think brain cells die in Alzheimer's disease, 
and Parkinson's disease. So by looking at how things happen, you can start crossing a number of boundaries. And that comes back to your first question about generic things. There's only so many things that can go wrong. There's only so many ways that a tissue or a cell can respond to that injury. So a lot of it is generic. So I can look at human disease. I'm not actually allowed to do pathology on human beings because you have to be a doctor to do that. But I can study the diseases in a, in a research lab. So you're going from taking, taking what we know about animals yeah. and, and the mechanisms there and then translating it onto yeah. what might happen in people. Because yeah. we are, after all, animals too. We are just another mammal. We walk on two legs rather than four. We have a rather curious lifestyle. But apart from that, pretty much the same. When you're talking about the building blocks of life, yeah. and we're talking about, well, young creatures, really, to, yes. to start okay. off with, what, what kind of things can go wrong? Well, I think we've all heard of genes, truly the, the DNA, the building block. And the DNA, if you like, is the information. And that information has to be translated into proteins that will then control how the body is put together. So as an animal develops, whether those blocks, as, you divide, as cells divide, all these building blocks need to divide and be shared between all the other cells. And sometimes that goes wrong. Right. Um, so we have examples here where either the animal is born with a gene that is faulty, a piece of DNA that isn't what it should be, or somewhere in development something has gone wrong. A signal between two cells has gone wrong, so they then don't do what they're supposed to do. So either there's something wrong with, with the instructions, mm. with the, the yeah. DNA itself, yeah. or there's something wrong with how that's been... The instruction trans is translated. Trans translated. Yeah. Have you got anything that demonstrates that for us? Yes. So if we look at this cat and count how num number of claws it has on the end of its feet, of course there should be five. This cat's got six. So somewhere along the line, a signal has gone wrong to produce a sixth digit. And that actually could be in the gene, or it could be a fault in translation. Um, in this country, we produce about 20 million lambs a year. And it's not uncommon to find lambs with more than four legs. That's a signal gone wrong. So we get these sorts of things happening from time to time. That cat, it couldn't care less whether it's got six claws or not. And in most cases, the lambs tend not to do so well. Uh, four legs usually work fine. The fifth or sixth leg, maybe not so well. The farmer keeps it going, and if it fattens, then that's fine. And if it doesn't, um, then it doesn't. So when you get these, these changes, mm -hmm. when you get these, these problems arising, it's not always catastrophic? Not always. It can be. I've got a little example here. It's been fairly catastrophic in this case, because this is a, a little puppy... And we've got this much smaller thing underneath. Uh, and this is a mummified fetus. So somewhere during its development, something went catastrophically wrong and everything stopped. Now, trying to find out why that was mummified is often very, very difficult indeed. So things can go catastrophically wrong, or the animal can be born and survive for a while. So this little puppy here has a cleft palate. The roof of your mouth is an arch and the tissue comes in from the left and comes in from the right and should meet in the middle to complete that arch. And what's happened in this puppy here, it hasn't met in the middle. Now, for young animals trying to suckle milk, the mouth has to get hold of the teat and suck. But if there's an air 
coming in from the nose, it can't get the suction. So these puppies don't suckle properly, and unfortunately many of them die as young puppies because they just can't suckle properly. So those are some examples of problems that have arisen due to maybe genetic changes. Probably, yeah. Accidental genetic Ac changes. Not much you can do about those. Right. Let me just talk about breeding animals. Manx cats come in four, four varieties. There's the rumpy, the stumpy, the longy, and the rumpy riser. And the true Manx cat has no tail bones at all. That's the rumpy. And all rumpies have spina bifida. Rumpies bunny hop. They don't walk like a normal cat. They sort of hop like rabbits. So in breeding a Manx cat, which is a breed that's been around for 100 years or more, they've actually bred a defect. Does it bother the cat? Not particularly. There's a bit of controversy about breeding dogs and certain dog breeds at the moment. So we all know the British Bulldog. So we have a bred a dog with a squashed nose. And the reason that most Bulldogs run around with their tongue hanging out is because the tongue is too big for the mouth. So we have bred a dog that's tongue hangs out, it wheezes because it can't breathe properly, and it's got short stumpy legs so it can't run properly either. We have designed the dog that way. And the controversy now is that almost certainly you can't breed a bulldog unless you do caesareans. Puppies do not come out normally. So the only way to maintain this breed is to do caesareans on them. And there is a clear question whether that is right and proper thing to be doing. So it's interesting, by breeding for a particular look, yeah. we've achieved what we wanted physically on the outside, but actually... Deformed the animal in the process. And almost to the point where... If that was in nature and evolution was allowed to have its usual effects, the bulldog would die out. It's us that keep it going. Alan Williams with Glass on the diseases and developmental disorders a veterinary pathologist may encounter. Lastly, Kimberly Freeman from the Royal College of Pathologists explains why they thought it was so important to include veterinary pathology in National Pathology Week. Well, this week we've had over 525 events happening across the country. It's been really, really good. We've had events for school children, we've had events for pathologists and GPs, and we've had events for A-level students all across the country. The theme this year has been mother and baby, and yet I find myself here at the Natural History Museum looking at animal bones. How does this fit in? Well, this year we're very keen to sort of highlight the scope of pathology and absolutely everything that feeds into such an amazing subject. Um, we've been focusing a lot, we've had events on pathology for pregnant women, but we've also wanted to highlight the scope of pathology. And so veterinary pathology is not something people think of when they think of pathology, so that was a really good idea to have an event on that. And was there anything in particular that we've seen today that caught your interest personally? Personally, I thought it was amazing to see some of the surgery that's performed on animals. You think of it as just a human thing. I've just seen a dog femur with a, an artificial hip replacement, which I thought was something they only do on humans, so that was really interesting. Kimberly Freeman from the Royal College of Pathologists. That's it for this podcast from National Pathology Week. Please join us for the others in this series where we'll be exploring the role of pathologists in pregnancy and we'll be going behind closed doors at Great Ormond Street Children's Hospital. You can find out more about National Pathology Week online at nationalpathologyweek.org. That's all one word. And you can visit the Royal College of Pathologists online at rcpath.org. I'm Ben Valsler from thenakedscientists.com and thanks for listening. <laughs>